All right, so we are back in Daniel. If you look at the front of the bulletin, I think it was uh, a typo there, which is totally fine, but it says something about Colossians. We're not in Colossians, we're in Daniel. Last time I, I preached, we talked about Daniel 7, and we talked about the four beasts and what all that meant, and it was super easy, and everyone understood it, and it was all good. Um, and it gets even easier. So, um, no, not really. We got, like, floating goats and stuff, and it's going to be an awesome ride. Um, but the theme that we have picked for Daniel 8, or for, for the whole book of Daniel, is that God is sovereign always. Now, before we jump in, I want to tell you a quick story. Um, I was, this week I was at home with my kids. My wife was out like grocery shopping or, or something, and I went up to my son's room, and the toys, like, like, when I say every toy was taken out, like every toy was taken out. And it was all over the floor, and I looked at Kai, and I was just like, hey, man, you got to clean this up. Like, you got it out, you got to clean this up. And he just looks at me, and he's like, Dad, it's too much. It's too much. And I'm like, Kai, like, you got to do it, man. And so I thought, you know what, I'll help you out. Uh, I'll help you out. Uh, I'll put all the toys into different piles, and you can see, like, which bin they go into, and, and uh, maybe that will help you uh, as you tackle this problem that it's too much. It was the same thing in college when I, when I ran. I was, listen, um, I was a horrible runner, all right? There's a couple people that go to church who, who actually ran with me. I was like the worst one. Um, the only reason I got to run was because like it was a new team and newish team and they need to fill a couple spots. And, and my girlfriend, wife now, was actually good and ran on the team. So I was like, hey, can I run? And he was like, sure. So when I, when I stepped up to the, the starting line, I, I was like, man, I got to race five miles. This, is, this isn't going to be fun. And so I'd break it down in my head. I'd be like, all right. Just get through the 5K, and then you only have like really 1.9 miles left. And you can do 1.9 miles. And that's how I break it up, and it helped me out. In the case of my son, uh, he looked at me, and he was like, nah, it's still too much. So <laughs> needless to say, it was a little bit of a fight, but he did clean it up. I, I bring all that up just because we're, we're jumping into a chapter that when we read it, and we read it from, from the beginning to the end, we might say like, man, this is too much. Like I, there's a lot of stuff in here that I don't understand. This is too much. And so I hope that as we go through Daniel 8, we're able to break it up, break it into to pieces, um, look at some, some Christians who are a lot wiser than I was, who have written really great commentaries on it, and, and try to understand what uh, God was showing Daniel, what Daniel was um, in, in turn going to write down that, that Jews at the, uh, years later would benefit from, and then, and then how we can possibly benefit from it today. So... I'm going to read Daniel 8, 1 through 14. We're just going to read 1 through 14 today. We're going to be in the whole chapter, but 1 through 14 is where you really get the vision that Daniel receives. Uh, the latter verses are where he gets an explanation, and we're going to, we're going to touch on those and go through all those um, just as we go. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to read Daniel 8, 1 through 14. So you can turn there and follow along. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after which, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I was, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, 
But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act, and it will prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And then Daniel will go on, and he will seek an interpretation, and he'll be given an interpretation. And then he will uh, be so exhausted, overwhelmed, overcome by this vision that he lays sick for some days until he continues in God's work. So let's pray. Pray that we can understand. Pray that I can speak clearly and pray that God's words are what are spoken. Uh, Dear Lord, we come to a chapter that can be difficult. God, uh, just pray that as we go through it, you will give us wisdom to understand. God, you will give Uh, me clear words, not for any of my benefit, um, but simply that your words are spoken, Lord. God, help us to humbly come to Scripture, to also understand that uh, it can be difficult. Uh, It doesn't make it wrong. Um, In fact, it highlights the magnificence of it. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Amen. All right, so so when we start, uh, Daniel 1 and two is, uh, sorry, Daniel 8, 1 and 2 is really just giving us a setting. It's kind of telling us where this vision is taking place. So Daniel is still physically in Babylon. Babylon has not fallen to Persia yet. If you remember Israel, like right when the book of Daniel starts, Israel is taken um, out of their land. Uh, Certain Israelites are taken out of their their land and they're uh, brought to Babylon in exile. And so Babylon is still the predominant ruling ancient empire when this vision is given to Daniel. We know that because it's in the third year of Belshazzar. However, in spirit, he is brought, as receiving this vision, in spirit, he is brought to somewhere in Persia. We, we read that he was at the Susa Citadel in the province of Elam uh, near the Ulai Canal. This, this is most likely modern day Iran, somewhere in modern day Iran. And it makes sense that he is brought here while seeing this vision because the beginning of this vision starts with the dominance of the Persian Empire. We're going to see the dominance of the Persian Empire laid out here. So verses 4 through 3 talk about a ram with one horn that is higher than the other horn, and and this ram is going to and fro and and just dominating anyone that walks in its path. It's going in every direction except the east, and the reason it's not going east is because Persia, the Persian Empire, laid east of Babylon. So it's the way that it conquers is to the west and north and south. How do we know that this ram is the Persian Empire? Well, that is actually really easy. If you go to the interpretation of the dream, if you guys look at verse 20 right now, we are literally told, Daniel is told, that this represents the Medo-Persian Empire. So at least that is very simple. And uh, we also know that this is, this is kind of like a cutscene from chapter 7. If you remember back in chapter 7, there were the four beasts, and two of those beasts were the bear that was raised up on one side and the leopard. And we're, we're really taking a cutscene out, and we're seeing like an in-depth look of the interaction between the bear and the leopard. So this vision Daniel is given, which is after the vision he received in 7, is really just taking a piece of seven and, and laying it out uh, more in depth for a purpose, which we'll, we'll get to. 
We also know that this, this ram has one horn that is higher than the other, and this represents how the Medo-Persian Empire kind of started as two units, but the Persian Empire, if, if you know your history, became far more dominant than the Medes. So now the Persian Empire is represented by a goat, and as this goat is dominating in, in the north and the south and the, the um, west, from the west, a goat comes. And a goat comes, and it comes across the face of the whole earth without touching any of the ground. And, and in verse 21, we're told, simple here as well, right? Verse 21 of this chapter, we're told that this goat represents the Greek empire. And the horn on the goat's head represents the first king of the Greek empire. And the imagery that we get alludes to the speed at which the Greek empire, when united under Alexander the Great, so again, if you know your history, uh, Alexander the Great from Macedon, his dad was a really good king, kind of set him up. He comes in after Greece had had like a lot of kind of civil wars. You had the, your city-states, you had Athens and Sparta and, and Thebes, and they formed these alliances. You've got your like Delian alliance and uh, Athenian alliance, and they really just go to war with each other, and they're all decimated by warring with each other. And then Alexander the Great comes in from Macedon, unites the whole Greek world, kind of claims Greekness himself and is really the first like big dominant king of a united uh, uh, Greek empire. And he just charges towards Persia. Again, if you study your history, Alexander the Great takes a much smaller army than you'd expect and just charges into Persia at full speed. People have said that it would, it would take just as long back then to just travel through Persia with no resistance, no armies fighting you, no battles fighting you, it would take the same amount of time to do that that Alexander took to, to conquer Persia. That's how quickly he moved through the Persian Empire, which is why we see this, this uh, speed alluded to with this goat. So then the goat strikes the ram. He, he breaks the horns. He throws the ram to the ground and tramples on it. And, and what, what's really laid out here, what's really laid out to Daniel it is nothing more than the turbulence, the, the, the violence that we see when you have two world powers collide and there's a transition from one world power to another, right? Especially in the ancient world, we see the, the uh, powerful Persian empire being overthrown by the Greek empire and there's, there's turbulence, there's violence, there's chaos, right? It's, 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 it's not a pretty sight. With all of that violence and, and turbulence and chaos, one thing that we know as Christians is none of it is random. There's no, there's no randomness or surprise with what is going on here. It's all planned out. The transition from, from Persia to Greek being in control is planned out, right? Historians are going to point to several reasons why Persia fell, when it fell. I mean, Persia had spread itself pretty big and, and really stopped expanding because it couldn't expand much. Uh, it was having some, some civil unrest. There were some protests. There was some even civil wars going on in Persia. And historians are going to say it was just the, the, the right type of random influences all, all came together at the right time. And that's why Alexander the Great was able to do what he did. We know, we know it's not random. We know that all of history, every piece of history belongs to God. God has planned out every single piece of history. But it's not only that history is planned out by God, but history is planned out by God for a purpose. There is a purpose in what God does. He's not creating the world just for his own fun or entertainment. He has a purpose. And God's purpose in this is his glory. And, and we see him most glorified through what Christ does on the cross, which is in turn the redemption of the world. We, we, we touch on the exile of Israel to Babylon, and, and we see the, these people exiled in Babylon, and, and we see the transition from Babylon to Persia, and then Persia to Greece, and, and then we'll see later Greece to Rome. And, and all of this is so God could make himself known through Christ at the perfect moment in history. There's not a thing that happens on any inch of this globe that is random. And it can be really tempting for us right now as Christians that are living in a world which, which seems chaotic and seems to be so rebellious against, against God and say, what is going on? <laughs> like, 
You read the news and you're like, what is going on? And I, I mean, I do. And it's in these moments that we, we have to remind ourselves that we have an author, that, that the author's good. And the author knows a whole lot more about the book than we do because he wrote the book. As a history teacher, uh, I, if, you, if you don't know me, I, I teach, I'm an eighth grade social studies teacher. So I teach on these, these uh, elements of like historical themes and turning points and, and causation. And, and I could save my kids a whole lot of time, <laughs> a whole lot of definitions and a whole lot of tests if I just told them, hey, God's in charge. He's in control. These turning points, whatever, these causation, all these things, the reason, uh, these random factors, yeah, it's not random. God's in control. Um, And, and in a hundred years, we're going to be history, right? To our grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren or, or whatever, and, and our lives are going to be weaved in the fabric of history. And so, so just as God, to God belongs history, so, so do our lives, right? We are interwoven in this, this fabric of, of what we call history. Our lives belong to history. And, and the events in our life are, are so that we will see the redemptive work of Christ. Just like history is all culminating at this, this work that Christ does on the cross and then everything thereafter is, is for God to be glorified and for people to turn and see that, so are our lives. Whether we do or not is up to God, but God desires, he has a desire that we will all see him glorified. Romans 2.4 says that, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And 1 Timothy 2.3-4 says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, whether we see that truth or not, is up to God, but he has a desire for us to see it. If you're a Christian, or, or if you're not a Christian and you're here, right? If you're not a Christian and you're here, the things that you experience in your life are meant that you'll see and acknowledge God. These, these good things. You, you go out and you taste a hamburger. God created that good taste to bring glory to him. You, you get married to the love of your life. Marriage was created for us to see Christ and to see God and how how that operates, and, and the tough things that we experience are meant to draw us towards God. And if we are a Christian, these good things that we experience are meant that we will glorify and see his glory and know him deeper. And as well as the tough things, they're meant for us to be pushed into a deeper relationship with him. And so just like history belongs to God, while, while sometimes seeming crazy and turbulent and, and, and random, it's not. It all belongs to God, so do our lives. Now, I, I, I wanted to just put a pin in it there and move on, um, but I don't think we can move on here without addressing obvious questions that might pop into to people's heads. I mean, how does the fact, this, these are just some, some things that I wrote down that I thought, hey, maybe someone who doesn't know Christ or maybe someone who does know Christ would, would wrestle with when we talk about God's sovereignty over history and over our lives. So how does the fact that history belongs to God and that it's all meant for redemption work with God's election and God's goodness and his sovereignty? In other words, God's in control and he's sovereign over both of what's going on around us and in us. He desires for us to be redeemed, yet he chooses an elect to redeem. Not, not to mention that we, we, we see some pretty crazy stuff go down in history, Right? I mean, let's remember, Daniel is, is getting a vision of the transition of, of Persia to Greece. And, and when this happens for him, when it, when it does happen for us looking back, when it did happen, these are, these are real people losing their lives. These, there are going to be real widows grieving their dead husbands. There's, there's going to be parents grieving the loss of their children. And, and I just told you that all of this belongs to God who is good and in control and, and desires redemption. And so if you're wrestling with how all of this comes together, welcome to the club. <laughs> like, I'm here too. I mean, I, I can't give you an answer that's going to please our limited human logic. 
What I can say is this. I can say definitely these things. Is God good? Yes. Is God in control? Yes. Does God desire people to be saved? Yes. Does the Bible most clearly teach that God will elect some to be saved? Yes. While seemingly contradicting to us in God's infinite wisdom, do these things contradict? No. We're so limited in our understanding of things because this whole thing, how it works out, doesn't belong to us. We're not the writers of it. God is. And while it's, it's a good thing to understand and to pursue these hard truths and to pursue understanding of them, it, it, still, it still doesn't belong to us. And, and I, I honestly wouldn't expect us to understand it all. I think if, if we look at Job, we get just a perfect example of this. If you're unfamiliar with Job, Job was a man in the Bible who, to, to sum it up, he had everything. God had given, blessed him with, with so much. And then Satan comes along and says, hey, this Job guy only loves you because of what you've given him. And God is like, no, it's not true. And basically lets Satan take away all that God has given him except his life, right? His, his very life. And Job loses everything. Job loses everything. And, and we get to a point in Job where um, Job is, is, is talking to God and he's saying, God, why? Like, what, what did I, did I not follow this? Did I not follow this command? God, why do I have to experience all of this? And God comes down in, in, in sort of a whirlwind and gives him these answers. And, and I, I don't think we can, we, we read the chapters where God answered Job, God answers Job, and I don't think we fully grasp just how awesome and amazing the answer that God gives him is. But he basically tells him, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I made this whole thing? Where were you? And, and, and the awesomeness of the answer, I can't even articulate, like, I, I can't even imagine it. But at the end of it, Job, Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job gets it, right? Job gets that our job is not to be a skeptic of the ways that God works, but to understand that the gap between our knowledge and God's is greater than that of the smartest person in this room and an, and an infant, right? I think, of, I think of my daughter, Rosie. If you know her, she's got severe brain disorder. Brain does not work like ours, super limited. The smartest person in this room, in this room and my daughter, the gap between those two people is nothing compared to the gap between us and God. And, and Job gets that. When God answers him, Job gets it. And so, so while we look at, and, and this may seem like this hard tangent from the text today, but when we look at history and we look at Daniel's life and we look at these interactions of violent nations and, and how our lives all belong to God, we, we have to surrender our, our ideas of how these things should work to, to a God that is infinite in his wisdom and perfect in his love. I would much rather have him figure all this out than, than myself. Now, the caveat, I think especially for, for the people in, in this church, I mean, for the most part, we are really blessed to have a lot of individuals who, who spend time in the Word and, and understand these concepts, right? I'm sure a lot of people are nodding, like, yeah, God is sovereign. Yeah, He's in control. Yeah, I, I get it. Um, and, and that's good. However, the temptation for us then, and, and myself, is to be really, really harsh with those who don't understand this concept, especially Christians, especially other people who, who claim to be Christians that are, are just wrestling through this and struggling through this and trying to figure out these concepts. I mean, for the, look at Daniel. For the second time, Daniel gets a vision from God. Daniel gets a word and he is just shook by the vision. He is shook by it. And, and there are people who are going through really, really hard and challenging things and, and we tell them like, hey, God's in control and he's good and it's so hard for them to piece all this together. And, and our job is not to be the Christian semantic police where 
You said it, but you didn't say it perfect. And so I'm going to smack you over the head with the Bible. Our, our job is to, to come and, and not back down from truth. Don't back down from truth. Don't compromise on truth at, at all. Don't compromise, but deliver truth graciously. Deliver truth in a way that is kind and gracious, right? We're called to, to be kind. Um, because honestly, as we continue in Daniel chapter 8, like the main thrust of this passage only gets more difficult. We're, we're going to see the people of God face persecution. Uh, we're going to see them face horrible persecution. And, and just like history belongs to God, so does the, the persecuted and the persecutor. Right? Just like history belongs to God, so does the persecuted and the persecutor. So in 8 through 14, we're going to jump back and, and we're going to go to 8 through 14. We're going to kind of see this um, vision laid out before Daniel. And there's going to be pieces of it that when we read it, it's like, oh, this is kind of confusing. I'm, I'm a little confused here. At least I was. And, uh, and so we're going to take it piece by piece, right? This is where it's good to kind of break it down. We're going to break it down. We're going to look at what it means. Um, full disclosure. I, I spent a lot of time in uh, Calvin and, and Matthew Henry's commentary, and this is just a really good uh, 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 chapter to advocate for why it's, it's cool. To, it's, it's a good thing to read the Bible along with a commentary of someone you can trust because we'll hit these difficult passages, and, and there's people who have, have spent their lives dwelling on these things, and, and they can be really edifying and, and help us. So. Um, a lot of this information that I'm getting on this next part of the vision comes from, from Matthew Henry and comes from Calvin. So the first thing we see is that, if you remember, the, the uh, ram gets taken out by the goat and um, Alexander the Great is, is the representation of this great horn on the goat. Well, then we see that this, this great horn is broken off and that four come up in its place and remain. And this simply refers to Alexander the Great's death. If you, if you study your history and you know your history, Alexander the Great goes into Persia, conquers all of Persia, conquers much of the known world, and kind of at the peak, the apex of his power, he dies. How he dies, I mean, people say he was poisoned, people say he got drunk and died, had a disease. There's, there's different um, Ideas, but what we know is at the peak of his power, Alexander the Great is taken out. And his four generals take over, and from these four generals come really two dominant um, Greek ideologies or factions, and then, and then one of these factions ends up kind of becoming the dominant influence in the Greek world. And from this, we get a, a king named Antiochus Epiphanes. So we read... From the, four, from the four, a conspicuous little horn rises up, who I would say, and, and most commentators point to, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now this means Antiochus the Magnificent, Antiochus the Great, something along those lines. Uh, that's what he called himself. Other people called him, uh, I don't remember the exact word, but it was something like Antiochus the Horrible or the Terrible or something like that. So he obviously thought he was pretty cool. Other people, not so much. Um, and this is the second time we, we meet this, this we, we meet a conspicuous little horn that rises up. And in chapter 7, we also talked a lot about this little horn that rises up. And, and some say both of these horns represent Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, if you remember when we spent time in 7, I, I, I think the little horn in 7 represents more of a, a greater Antichrist, Antichrist attitude that you see throughout leaders that um, persecute God's people and, and things like that, whereas this one is almost, almost most assuredly, this horn in this chapter is almost most assuredly um, Antiochus Epiphanes. So who was he? Who is Antiochus Epiphanes? So he's a king. He, he rises up to become king of the Greek world, and uh, the, the reason he's called little is, is because he, he wasn't the one that you would expect to rise up and become king. He, uh, he was captured by the Romans. He was, in, um, he, he was a fugitive living in Rome for a long time. He wasn't this great 
awesome leader like Alexander the Great, but he was cunning and, and he viewed himself as great and he ends up becoming king. And we learn a lot about Antiochus Epiphanes from books called the Maccabees. And some people may be grabbing their chair right now and are like, all right, you're bringing in the Apocrypha. What? Rob's gone and you're just going crazy. Uh, the, uh, if you're unfamiliar, the Apocrypha is a collection of books. This is a quote from Desiring God. The Apocrypha is a collection of books written in the four centuries between the Old and New Testaments. And though the Apocrypha is not scripture, many Protestants, including Luther, Calvin, and other reformers, have found the collection useful historically, theologically, and spiritually. And so, full disclosure, I didn't read 1st or 2nd Maccabees, but the commentaries that I read drew a lot from 1st and 2nd Maccabees. And, And what we can get from these two books in particular is a historical view of who Antiochus was and what he did to God's people. Really the main uh, thrux of those books is Antiochus's persecution of the Jews. So as we go through these next descriptors, I'm going to give you explanations for them, and those come from Calvin and Henry, who spent a lot of time in these two books. I'm not telling you to go by Maccabees and do your next like three-month devotion in Maccabees. That's not what I'm advocating for, but it can shed some light historically. So we read that this horn grows great toward the south and the east and the glorious land. And this is really just describing the kingdom kind of that Antiochus builds. And the reason it says the glorious land is because this is referring to Israel. He historically like weirdly loved the land of Israel but hated the Jews. He spent a lot of time in Israel. He turned it into kind of an outpost for himself to launch a further invasion into Egypt. He really wanted to invade Egypt. And Israel kind of became his home while he was pursuing those things. It kind of became a a military outpost, would you say? And and as he is in Israel, he, um, like I said, doesn't treat the Jews well. We read that he grew great even to the host, and, and just a reminder, this is what Daniel is receiving, right? The, what, what Daniel sees. He grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and the stars are thrown to the ground and trampled on. Matthew Henry has a, has a quote on this. I figured I would just read it rather than explain it. He says, some of those that were most eminent, both in church and state, that were burning and shining lights in their generation, he, referring to Antiochus, the little horn, either forced to comply with his idolatries or put them to death. He got them into his hands and he then trampled upon them and triumphed over them. So to summarize, Antiochus goes to the land of the people of God. He comes against the people of God. He persecutes the people of God. He kills the people of God. And then it says, Daniel's told, he became great even as the prince of hosts. And so what that means there is not that he became as great as God, but in his own mind, and and we see that laid out in the explanation of this vision to Daniel in 20 something, I can't remember the exact verse, but in Antiochus's own mind, he became God. He viewed himself as Zeus incarnate. He basically said, if you see me, you see Zeus. He created coins with his face that that referred to him as God. He he takes away the regular burnt offering, right? We, we We read that Daniel is told he takes away the regular burnt offering and the sanctuary is overthrown. When Antiochus was living in Israel, he Uh, ended the morning and evening sacrifice. And and this is really significant because this was the way that Israel stayed in constant communion with God, this morning and this evening sacrifice to, to fulfill the law that God had given. Quick tangent here. There are Jews that we we read about that are wrecked by the ending of the morning and evening sacrifice. And and this was so convicting to me. 
what would our lives look like if a politician came and, and started and created a law that said we can no longer do evening and morning devotions? Would we be as wrecked as these Jews? Would our life change? Would we change very much? Uh, anyways, that's just, just a quick tangent thought there, but uh, he, the sanctuary is overthrown, so when Antiochus is in Israel, he, he uh, goes to the temple, he goes to the sanctuary, and he takes down everything referring to God, and he puts up an um, altar for Zeus. He, he literally takes the temple of God, and he uh, puts up an altar um, where they would sacrifice to Zeus. He, he even took a pig, and he sacrificed it on this altar, right? And so... All of, all of these things that Antiochus is doing is just this intense persecution of the Jews. And we have to remember that this hasn't happened yet in Daniel's mind. So as Daniel sees this, he is kind of getting a warning. Hey, this is what's going to happen. Why? Why is it going to happen? Well, it says a host will be given to it along with the regular burnt offerings because of transgressions. Another quote here, uh, and, and truth will be thrown to the ground and it will act and prosper. And so th that's kind of the end of, of the vision that Daniel receives in, in regards to Antiochus um, until he gets the explanation, which we'll touch on in a second. Uh, another quote, um, and I see I, I forgot to put if it's Henry or Calvin. So one of these guys, <laughs> um, give credit to one of them, Henry or Calvin. They say, we ought to eye and own the hand of God in all the enterprises and all the successes of the church's enemies against the church. They are but a rod in God's hands. God would not have permitted it if his people had not provoked him to do so. It is by reason of transgression, the transgression of Israel, to correct them for that, that Antiochus is employed to give them all this trouble. So to sum this up, Daniel's told that a king is going to come. He's going to reside in Israel. While there, he's going to have no respect for God. He's going to kill Israelites. He's going to desecrate the temple. He's going to tear this down. He's going to construct a temple to a false god. He's going to prevent Israel from obeying God's law. And all of this is because of punishment for Israel's sins. All of this is happening because of punishment for Israel's sins. Both Calvin and Henry point to the fact that this chapter, this vision, is given for the betterment of the Jews to come. You might think, how? Because at the end of this chapter, Daniel's told to seal up the vision, so how could it be for the benefit if he just has to keep this to himself? Well, it's, it's not for the Jews now. They, remember, they're still in Babylon. In fact, much of Daniel, especially I think it's like 2 through 6, is written in Aramaic. And so the reason it's written in Aramaic is because those books are, are supposed to be benefit for both the Jews, but also the Babylonians. The Babylonians are also supposed to benefit from what Daniel is writing down. And this chapter, 7 and 8, and I believe till the end, are, are written in Hebrew. And so, so this is for the benefit of the Jews. But if it were to, to be given now, the Babylonians might look and be like, hold up, this vision you're, you're telling us is, is saying that we're all going to be crushed and we're all going to be fall and Persia's going to come in and then they might blame the Jews for all of the things that happened to Babylon, right? This, is, this, is, this jumps ahead where Babylon's already fallen. And so Daniel's supposed to seal up this vision for when the Jewish people are, are going to be coming closer to this persecution that they're facing in Antioch or uh, by uh, Antiochus. The, the severity that they face is, is, uh, is terrible. I mean, they're going to be killed, the sacrifice gone, and, and Calvin points out that many of the people of God, after seeing all of this, might think God is unable to subdue his foes. Like, why let this happen? God, why are you letting this happen? Hey, you're not in control. But God's telling them, this is going to happen. I'm going to let this happen. And he tells them why. He tells them it's because of their sin. 
And I mean, I don't think we can move on from here without making the point, how often do we call out? How often do we say, I am so unfortunate. I am so persecuted. God, why? Or we look at the world and we say, God, why is the world like this? What are you doing? When, when in reality, we're merely facing consequences of our sin, right? We, we look at God and we say, why is my life like this? We look at God and we say, why is the world like this? And we ignore the fact that we have either sinned or, or how sinful the world is. I'm, I'm sure there were a lot of Jews that were grumbling and they were crying out and they were saying, God, why? Right? God, why? While Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes is, is dwelling in Israel. When in reality, they failed to look at the warnings of their sin and then the consequences of their sin. God told them, if you do this, this is going to happen. They had to be brought back to God. They had to be corrected. There had to be punishment. On the other hand, there were probably really faithful Jews that were crying out and asking God why. And, and, and we know that even the smallest of sins is, is heinous in God's eyes and, and worthy of punishment. We're, we're also going to face persecution for staying true to God, for following His commands. There are, there are Jews that are put to death because they were not doing what Antiochus told them. I mean, he was, he was trying to keep them from circumcision. He was keeping them from a whole lot of things. And there were Jews that that didn't do that, and so they were killed, right? And it's in these moments that it's important to note that to God belongs both the persecutor and the persecuted. Remember that if we are in Christ, if we are in Christ, whatever persecution we face is for the purpose of God's glorification, both for, for your benefit and for the benefit of those around the pain, the suffering, the trials, all of this points to a broken world that is marred by sin and a world that needs to acknowledge Christ, right? The, the Jews faced a punishment for their sin. Christ has faced a punishment for us. And if we are in Christ, take hold of the fact that while facing persecution or while in the midst of these trials, he's got you. He's not going to let you go. If you are in Christ, there's no fear of you falling to this and, and walking away from Him. He has got you. He will take you to the end. Both you and your persecutor are simultaneously held in the hands of God, which will result in further dependence upon God and further glorification of God. When people see people walk through things that are difficult, and they still remain faithful to God, God is glorified. I take a lot of, of uh, encouragement from the lives of people in the Old Testament who walked with God in the midst of terrible persecution, Old and New Testament. Um, specifically, I mean, we talked about him earlier, but I look at Job, and, and I look at Job, and I see what he walked through, and yet how he still remains, while, while frustrated, while irritated, while questions, he still remains faithful to God. And that just glorifies God all the more because we wouldn't remain faithful without His work in us. And so as these Jews face this persecution and as we face pain and trials, let us know that we are held in the hands of God. It's also important to note that our persecution is only for a time. There's a set time, right? These trials, these pain, the suffering is for a set time. If you remember when we were in Daniel 7, Daniel 7, you'll remember, I'm not one that gets like super excited about um, the time stuff in the Bible. I'm not here like subtracting and adding and trying to figure it all out. Uh, whether it's times, time, and half a time, like in Daniel 7 or in Daniel 8, we see the 2,003, or two, 2,300 mornings and evenings. If you do want to know, there's two views on this 2,300 mornings. This is how long this is going to last, right? Daniel asks hey, like how long is this going to last? And, and they tell him 2,300 mornings and evenings. If you take it as days, it's around six years. And that's actually the course of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign as king. And then if you take it as like the a morning sacrifice is one and then an evening sacrifice is two, you would divide that in half. You'd get about three years. And that's actually the time from when he takes the temple 
uh, uh, pushes aside the things of God and, and uh, puts up the things, um, the, the temple of Zeus. So like when he does that till when that, the temple is purged and rededicated. So either one of these, I mean, works out pretty well. I'm, I'm cool with either one. But uh, what, what I really get from, from the time, what really has encouraged me when I see these things like 2,300 mornings or, or times, time and half a time is, is I know that there's a time that has been set by God. I know that there's a time. I know that there's a beginning to the persecution. I know there's a beginning to the trials. And I know that there's an end. And, and that's what I, I, I really take from this, and I think that's what we can take from this, is, is that knowing that both, both what I am facing and, and what people are doing, what others are facing and, and, and what people are doing is, is held in the hands of God, and the time that he sets is the time that is good. And while we trust in this, right, while, while we look at this chaotic world or we look at our lives that may feel like they're falling apart or or we look at our lives that are good and, and we thank God. And while we trust that he's in control of it all, we need to also trust what we are called to do. And if we look at the end of Daniel, we see that we're called to continue. That's, that's the third point. I think I've done a really bad job of saying like point one, point two, point three. I don't even know if I said the title. I, I apologize. Uh, the title of the sermon is To God Belongs. But um, I, didn't, I couldn't think of like a fancy name for this. So, so point three is just continue. And, and as we look at this interpretation of the vision that Daniel receives, we've touched on a lot of it already, but I think there's really two things that we can walk away from, all right, to, to walk away with. So th- there's really two things that we can walk away with from this. And, and the first is, is rest, and the second is continue. Uh, so let's, let's just take a look at the interpretation, and then we'll close. So Daniel sees this vision, he receives this vision, and, and he wants to understand what's going on, right? He wants to know, what does this mean? He, he asks God, what does this mean? And we are told that one having the appearance of a man commands Gabriel, an angel, to give Daniel an interpretation. And a quick note for those who are wondering, considering this person is referred to having the appearance of a man, and that he's able to command the angels, this, this is, is probably Christ. Christ is commanding Gabriel to say, to give Daniel an interpretation. And uh, when he gets this interpretation, we see that in verse 25, he says, By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So Antiochus, like, like we've said, thought of himself as God, rises up, has no regard for God, and, and seemingly is successful in the persecution of the Jews. However, we're told that he is going to be broken by no human hand. If you know how Antiochus dies, he... Um, he gets worms and they're really intense and he gets like a disease and like he couldn't control his bowels and like his flesh was falling off and he dies of this horrible disease, right? No human could do that to him. No person could do that to him. God is the one who ends Antiochus's persecution of the Jews. And while this sounds, I mean, it's, 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 it's hard to wrestle with, we can take rest in knowing that when we face persecution, when we face these various trials, God has the solution already worked out. We've already made the point that it's for a set time, and when that time comes, the, the end will be provided by God. God has it worked out. He has the solution. And, and knowing this, we are called then to continue. So we're called to rest in the fact that God is in control and we're called to continue. In verse 27, we see Daniel write, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose up and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Listen, Daniel has basically been told that his people are going to face horrible 
persecution. We're, we're going to, in the next time we're in Daniel, we're going to see Daniel's prayer. We're going to see, see Daniel's plea. But right now he's been told that his people are going to face horrible persecution. How much of this he understands, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it says he did not understand it, but he obviously knows enough to, to be appalled. He knows enough to be shook by it. He, he's overcome with the weight of this. And, and so much so, it says he is sick for days. However, he gets up and then he continues. And, and when, I, when, I, when I think about people in our church, specifically here, citizens, I'm honestly like super encouraged. I, I think about the times that like people here have just been hit by stuff that has really just taken us out. I mean, like, without going into details, bringing up specific people, just know that there are people here, and it, it, it could be you, who have, who have walked through tremendous pain, who have walked through tremendous trials in their life, have had tremendous loss, have had suffering, whether it's loss of people, physical ailments, whatever it is. And, and when, when I look at you, I'm encouraged because you already understand this. While, while we might be taken out here for a second, I, I constantly see people back up faithfully performing their duties. Whether it's serving within the church, whether it's being fathers or mothers or, or, or working faithfully in their jobs, whatever it is, I'm so encouraged by the people here. And, and I hope that people see this too, not as a testament to citizens or, or, or whatever, but as a testament to God's work in the lives of people here. I hope that other people see how we continue, not because of our merit, not because of what we can do, but because of God's work in our hearts and ultimately for His glory. So just to close, while we live in a time where life can be crazy, it can be violent, it can be scary, we can face persecution, we can face trials, we have to remember that God is good that it all belongs to God. And in remembering that, continue to continue, right? Continue in service in whatever area God has placed you, not for your own benefit, not for your glory, but so that God would be glorified. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the difficult passages. We thank you for the times we open our Bible and we say, wow, this is hard. Uh, we thank you because it's good. Even though it's hard, it's good. God, I pray that we can look at these passages of um, Jews, specifically Daniel, who is able to see, is able to be given a taste of, of what's to come and it, and it doesn't look pretty, yet he continues in where you have called him to be. Help us, God, to be like Daniel. Give us the endurance to continue. God, give us the faith we need to continue. And God, help us in our pride to, to, to squash that and to understand that our continuing in faith is because of work that you have done in our life and it's for the purpose of glorifying you so others can see you glorified. God, we love you and we thank you. Amen.